Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me for the third time on the show today is Eric Degatti. Eric is a phenomenal individual who has so much valuable insight and information to share as it relates to movement screening, movement assessment, program design, program considerations, and so much more. And today we're talking about all of that specifically uh, in relation to baseball. So this is kind of continuing our little mini-series on various sports, and today our focus is baseball. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and please make sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and make sure to leave a five-star review if you like this episode. Enjoy the show. Eric, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Awesome, awesome. Always good to be back here, Dan. Yeah, I think this is what our third time together, man. Yeah. You must uh, you must really like me or something if you're back for a third time, or maybe I just really like working with you. One of the two. Well, I, I can tell you, it's it's refreshing to see somebody who's kind of uh, fresh into the industry as a as a PT who has the perspective that you have. So I always enjoy kind of talking shop with you. I appreciate that, and you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think in a lot of ways. Physical therapists, chiropractors, ATs should learn more from strength coaches. I think in some ways, strength coaches can learn from PTs. So I think the more we blur the lines between us, the better we're all going to be. You know, for people who are listening, maybe they haven't heard our past episodes together. Maybe they haven't heard of you or principles of program design or all the amazing things that you guys have been doing. Could you fill them in a little bit about what you're up to? All right. Uh, to give the quick backstory, you know, I'm, I'm now uh, hitting year number 25 in the industry uh, as a performance coach and fitness professional. And so D- dare um, I stop you there and say that's how old I am. <laughs> that's that's not comforting in any way Dan. um but nonetheless so uh a bunch of different projects that I, that i'm involved in and so um i used to have my own facility here in north new, uh, northern new jersey and then i got involved in a bunch of different things consulting and coaching and and kind of have a couple different hats that i wear throughout the day one of them is uh for the prof- professionals out there i started a course with a, a partner mike perry called prof- uh uh, principles of program design where we teach the art and science of, of designing training programs um and then um on the baseball side since i know we're going to talk baseball which is my favorite thing to geek out on <laughs> i'm involved in a couple projects <clears throat> one is diamond revolution training which is a, a uh, online virtual training pro- program that i have for baseball players baseball and softball players as well as a nonprofit initiative that i'm part of uh, called the Baseball Health Network. And that's a partnership where I'm the performance director and alongside uh, Dr. Chris Ahmad, who's our medical director, who's also the team doctor for the Yankees and Steve Hayward, who's the founder of it, who's a former pro player and basically educating parents and coaches and players on how to avoid injuries and stay healthy and kind of get the most out of their careers. So uh, all that kind of keeps me busy as well as the podcast that I do called Principles of Performance. And somehow you have time to sleep with all of that going on, Eric. My goodness, you do everything. Yeah, just take little bits at a time. And and so, uh, um, you know, it, it's it's something that I've been working on. All these things kind of in pieces throughout my career. Now it's all kind of culminating together. So it's it's uh, it's kind of a busy but exciting time. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, everything you've mentioned is incredible from your work on the nonprofit side to your work in the professional sector and your Con Ed courses and coursework that you've developed to kind of push the profession further. I mean, you're certainly an impressive individual. 
And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone needs to look twice at a resume like yours. Uh, but diving into baseball a little bit here today, you know, one of the things that I keep hearing come up on the podcast is, well, you know, it depends. It depends. It really depends on the athlete. You need to assess them first. You need to do a needs analysis. You need to screen them. You need to evaluate them in some capacity. And that's certainly true when it comes to working with baseball athletes or any athlete for that matter. Thinking about the sport of baseball a little bit, where do you usually start from when, you know, say you get a fresh baseball player, maybe a high schooler, or even a college guy comes in, wants to work with you? Where do you start on assessment and evaluation of them? Yeah, individually is when I have the luxury of being able to do that. If I'm working with a team like tomorrow, I have a high school team. It's, they just don't have the affordance of time or ability or access to do those kind of things. So in a perfect world, yes. And and I joke with the teams. I'm like, look, in a perfect world, we're Vanderbilt and we got all the time and money in the world and we can do those kind of things. But we're not. We're a public high school and I got to do the best I can to to get you as resilient as possible. Now, if you come to me individually, well, that's when I can really get a little bit more granular. And so we start with the 10,000 foot view and work our way in. First, starting off with just some of the most fundamental things and some of the, the, the biggest parts of the evaluation, as much as I teach things on movement testing and, and capacity testing and so forth, some of the most impactful uh, evaluation is just asking what I call the key questions, like asking like, okay, well, why are you here? Um, one of the questions I always, I always love to ask is my magic wand question to say, all right, Dan, you're my client. If I had a magic wand in my closet over there and I can give you any one thing, like you're just about to, to, to run out of the dugout and, and cross the line for your, for your first game. And if you're saying to yourself, if I could just have this one physical attribute, if I could just be more of this, what would that be? And that, that insight that they'll give to say, okay, well, this is what I feel like I'm really missing. That is, is just as valuable as anything that I'm going to do from a testing perspective, um, you know, in, in terms of gathering information. Now, hard data also is very important. It drives my program. And I tell everybody, as I'm doing your assessment, you're basically, you're writing your program for me. So we start with just some, some general movement. And, and so the thing with baseball or anything really is that, and we were talking about this just before we went live here, is that we always want to jump into the specificity of it. Whereas I look at it from the perspective, like you have to kind of earn your specificity, meaning like I'm going to look at general movement first. Like, can you do some really fundamental things? Like, can you touch your toes? Can you extend backwards? Can you rotate right to left? And if you can't even do those fundamental things, well, like diving into going to really granular stuff, like I can go do an on-base evaluation and look at all the different movement factors that may correlate to your swing or your pitching delivery. But like, if I miss the big rocks that you can't even touch your toes or you have a really poor breathing strategy or you, you have terrible sleep or nutrition or any of those things, like I don't need to get that far down the rabbit hole to know exactly how many degrees of glenohumeral external rotation you have. So we start wide and then we work narrow as you pass those hoops. If we find that you have some really general deficiencies, we're going to start there because a lot of times it might even clear up some of those specific things. We didn't have to spend a lot of time with a thousand corrections to deal with things that that really could get cleaned up on more of a global basis. And then from there, yeah, we get we want to look at not just movement competency. We want to look at physical capacities. Um, and not only that, diving a little bit deeper, where do you where do you generate your power from um, to kind of get a little bit of insight into that? 
um, and then look at some specifics and then also look at some of the other factors, body composition, um, your, your cardiovascular fitness, some of those things, cause they'll all come into play. So that's how I get a, a really good picture. And from there, you, you basically wrote your program for me. Yeah, definitely. I love that approach. And, you know, as you're talking here, some of these basic movements like toe touch, backward bend, rotation, even like a squat movement assessment, how many athletes do you see one-on-one -on -one that nail every general test that you do with them? How often is it that someone gets hundred percent on the easy stuff? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it kind of is dependent on, on a few things. One is their <clears throat> physical maturity. Um, two is, is a little bit of their background and kind of what they've done up until this. And what you're finding, especially now in sports like baseball, where it's so specialized, where, this is a 12 month a year, 12 months out of the year kid who is nothing but baseball, but does nothing to make themselves athletic. Those kids usually fail miserably um, because they're, they're very skill dominant, but very uh, athletically poor, right? So they're overskilled and, and underpowered um, these, these athletes. So they just, they're, they're never taught how to move their whole life revolves around getting dropped off at the next hitting lesson, pitching lesson, doing, you know, uh, going from one league to another league, to another team, to another team, and that there's no development process. It's just competition. And, and so because of that, we have to kind of break them down and, and rebuild them from scratch. Right. Right. So that in that case, their movement vocabulary is essentially baseball. And in some ways, it's it'd be all better. skill dominant. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be better if it had a wider bucket to start from, because what I'm starting to notice is it seems like a lot of athletes, regardless of we're talking high school level or even elite levels like professional, a lot of them seem to just kind of need new strategies to solve movement compensations, for lack of a better way to put it. They need a bigger movement vocabulary instead of just doing the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, I'm sure if you even did slow motion of, you know, baseball swings or pitchers, um, you know, wind up motion, I'm sure there's probably small minute differences every single time they throw the ball or swing the bat. I don't think it's possible to make things identical every single time you do it, even if you've been doing it for years and years on end. Nor do we probably even want to. We want to have the that um that availability of of a skill and i the expression i use with my athletes dan is that the base the biggest thing i want you to learn is how to learn right the greatest athletes have that adaptability because if not and you're just this robot who just is this this same monotonous hitting lesson every single time of this you know a block practice of i do this many swings off of the, the t down and away and this many swings off of the t up and in and and i have this robotic thing well i don't know how to adjust when i see an off-speed pitch i don't know how to adjust when my timing is off because i don't have that that variability built within my system and then if you don't have if you also don't have the ability to to express your athleticism your strength your power it's almost like having a car with the emergency brake on. And so you'll get <clears throat> kind of this where it's, things are put into these buckets and they're, and they're really uh, and more in silos than I should say buckets and where, okay, my skill work is over here. And then I go, and if I'm going to get better from an athletic perspective, I do, I, I go and strength train over here, but there's no correlation between any of it. And so what, what ends up happening is you have, a, you know, athletes who could be big and strong, but they can't access it. And so it's not necessarily how much strength and power you have, 
obviously that's important, but if you can't access it like right now, and if you can't access it under different demands and in different planes and, and um, under different uh, scenarios and, and with different constraints, then it, it's, it's all for naught. You, you, you have a, a Lamborghini, you can't get out of first gear. Right, right. I love how you uh, use that analogy and I love how you related it back to power. Earlier, you had mentioned that one of the things you look for is, you know, assessing where an athlete's power comes from. Are they generating it from the hip? Are we generating it from the lumbar spine? Maybe we don't have good hip drive. Maybe we're missing the ability to dissociate movement at the hip. And how would you go about assessing or screening for that, especially in the power development side? Because I can't tell you how many times I've heard an athlete come in and say, I just want more power. I just want to hit the ball further. I just want to throw the ball faster. So how do you go about assessing where power comes from? And I guess, you know, I'll lead into my next question of, you know, is it always a question of we need a bigger engine to make more power? Or is it something more of like a fine tuning motor strategy, I'll say? Could be both. And so that's why you, that's why I go through the process the way I do. So first to look at, do you even have the movement competency? So if you can't, even disassociate and, and, you know, and we'll do tests to look, can you rotate your trunk over your hips? Can you rotate your hips under your trunk? Um, do you have, can you uh, rotate your hip within the pelvis? Like if you can't do those things, well, now you can't create that coil that is really generated through creating that, that fascial tension in that coil that generates your power. So that's a movement issue. Um, that may be the, that that's the key to unlocking your power. Now, if you have all that movement ability, it doesn't mean you're going to generate power, you know, because now, because people will hear that and they'll say, oh, well, movement's really important and I'm just going to do a bunch of yoga. Well, I haven't met a yoga instructor who can hit it over the fence, right? <laughs> so they, they, they move really well and move really gracefully, but they're also the slowest, least powerful people in your neighborhood. So I need to be able to then take that movement and then can I actually apply force through there? So the, the two tests that I that I'll use as well as others, but the two primary tests I'll use is I'll use the fundamental capacity screen from, from FMS. And what that looks at is to look at kind of your four quadrants of, of, of athleticism, your, your motor control, which is basically the control of your limbs in space, right? Cause if you can't control, well, now you're trying to fire a cannon from a canoe, right? So I, I building arm velocity on an unstable shoulder is not a really good idea. Then I look at your postural control. How well do you basically manage against gravity? Then I look at explosive control. How much force can you create? And then can you create it more on one leg than the other? Can you create it more um, when, can you connect your upper and lower body together? And then uh, your elasticity, your ability to kind of, to absorb and recoil and, and reproduce that energy. Now that's, that's kind of those four corners. And then within that explosive control, taking a step further, I love the TPI power test, which is a series of uh, jumps combined with medicine ball throws relative to your body weight. And then we can start to see, okay, where are you generating this power from? Is it, is it more from your lower body? Is it more from your, your torso? Is it more from your upper body? Or do you produce it better in rotation? And if you do in rotation, how does your non-dominant side match up with your dominant side? Because everything that I do to throw or swing lefty is what decelerates my, my righty throw or swing. And the better my decelerators are, the better my brakes are, the better my gas and my, my accelerators are going to be. So that's a consideration as well. So you take all that information 
and then you match it up with how they move and then you match it up with their physical capacities. And now you have a pretty good profile of, of what you're looking at. And it's not as simple as saying, okay, well, I have two kids who are shortstops. They may need completely different profiles in terms of what their training should look like. I'm so glad you brought up the point of deceleration there, Eric, because how often do we see training programs of working to get people running faster and moving faster, even in warmups, a lot of times they do a lot of concentric heavy things. I very rarely see individuals work on the deceleration and the eccentrics when it comes to rotation or when it comes to sprinting or jumping or those types of, you know, functional activities, we'll call them. And I like to, you know, at least for me, I'll make an argument sometimes that the deceleration is far more important than the acceleration. I love your analogy about firing a canoe or fire, firing a canoe, firing a cannon from a canoe. Um, you know, I think that really hits home to the fact that you need to have a stable surface in order to shoot from. And if you don't have that stability proximally or at places like the core, the scapula, then all of the distal things to it, the elbow, the wrist, whatever, are going to have to suffer the consequences, unfortunately. And, you know, ultimately your goal as a strength coach is to keep an athlete in the game longer. You know, it'd be great if every bench, if every baseball player could bench press 600 pounds, but unfortunately there's probably not a whole lot of work correlating bench press to baseball career longevity. And if you can keep someone in the game for a longer period of time, I would imagine that they would become a better player just from injury reduction alone, right? You know, if you have to sit out eight, 10 months, then you've probably lost eight to 10 months of skill in that time and motor repetition and movement learning. Well, not to mention the compensations that you'll develop around that, whether it, whether it be physical compensations or psychological compensations that you'll develop. And so a couple of points to take out of that is one is, is, People hear that and they'll say, well, bench press is bad and no one should bench press. And that's mm -hmm. not the case. I have baseball players who will bench press. It's probably not my first go-to and I have a lot of other options, especially since they're generally so asymmetrical. But it's when you focus on that at the expense of other things like deceleration. So if you, haven't, if you don't have a checklist to make sure you can do these things. Now, deceleration is actually the first step. Um, and the reason why it's the first step, because that's where most of your injuries occur, your ability to decelerate the arm and, and where a lot of the weighted ball work came from. And a lot of the stuff that, that Tom house was, was behind was, was, um, genius in, in creating a lot of his, his drills was why is it that tennis athletes who serve the ball just as hard and have just as violent of a motion overhead with the shoulder don't seem to have the arm injuries that we do as throwing athletes. Well, it's because they don't release the racket. And so one of the, some of the things that will start off doing is your ability to decelerate the arm. And so when people say, do you do weighted ball work? And I'll say, absolutely. I do a lot of work with pile balls, but most of it is deceleration biased where we're working on, whether it's reverse throws, we're working on the ability to, where I'll flip a ball and they have to decelerate it under control, put on the brakes first. And then once they can do that, then they can absorb that force, put on the brakes and then recycle and then rebound and come back. If you think about what's happening in the loading and cocking phase of throwing a ball, they're, they're winding up and they have to be able to decelerate in one direction and then get that ramped up and go in the other direction and then decelerate it again. And most of those injuries, whether it's in the, in the shoulder and throwing arm, or even when you hear about all the oblique strains and the rib cage strains and, and uh, adductor strains, all those are, are, are generally deceleration biased. 
because you don't have the ability to put on the brakes. And so that's some of the most important things that you look at. And that's why we look at differentials to say, do you, can you throw a ball much further in a shot put throw lefty than you do righty? If there's a huge differential there, not only is it robbing from your power, but it's also going to lead you much more susceptible to injury. Gotcha. So that shot put throw is one of your main screening tools, I'll say, for assessing deceleration or what would you say um, you usually turn to to assess eccentric control outside of just kind of slowing down basic functional movements and basic power development? Well, what you're looking at, that's more in rotation and, mm -hmm. and looking at rotational power. And if you have a big deficit from one to the other, it's one of my tip offs that you may not have that. Um, you'll also see that when a person generally lacks motor control and they don't have a really good uh, basis support, whether it's on a single leg uh, or on a single arm, those are some tip offs that this person doesn't have. And then you also look at kind of archetypes of people and looking at things like, um, like their, their, their Biton scale. And what the Biton uh, scale is, is looking at just overall laxity. And this is one of the things I think a lot of people don't look into. And I find it incredibly valuable, especially going back to the conversation about weighted balls, because everybody wants to either demonize them or glorify them. And it's just, as you said earlier, it depends. So generally what I found is people who are, who are higher on that scale. So it's a nine point scale that looks at just kind of generic hypermobility of your joints. And so, um, you know, there's basically two things that hold your joints in place. There's, there's the, um, you know, muscular tension that you have that's conducted across your tendons. And then you have your ligamentous and, and uh, cartilaginous, you know, uh, components of the joint, which are more plastic in nature. And so if they don't have, if they're, you know, you get that person who's quote unquote loose jointed or double jointed, they don't have that, that stability. They have a much higher demand for, for muscular stability. And so their, their joints don't have that same control. Well, you give that person a weighted ball, one of the mechanisms that, that makes weighted balls effective is it creates additional range of motion. Well, I don't want to be doing that in somebody who's got lax joints because guess where that range of motion is coming from? It's not from their soft tissue. It's going to come from the joint itself. And, and instantly, anytime that I found people that, that come in and test with me and they're, they're more on the hypermobile side, they do not respond well to weighted ball work. Whereas the ones who are a little bit more tightly wound and a little bit stiffer actually love it. it makes them feel great because uh, it gives them a little bit of grease uh, within those joints. So like something as simple as that and looking at that profile that you get that hypermobile kid who, who lacks stability. And then again, now they're, they're much more susceptible and you add a lot of horsepower to that kid. That's a lot more dangerous than the kid who's super stiff and can't touch his toes. Cause he's just never going to get in position to generate the same amount of force. It's not going to have that same whip. Um, so that's a, another huge consideration that a lot of people don't think about. No, I completely agree. And I love that you brought that up. I mean, it always gets back to your favorite question of why, why are you doing what you're doing? And you know what you started it with, why is the athlete coming to see you in the first place? But why are you doing what you're doing from an intervention standpoint? Why that exercise? And, you know, the next question I would say is it really, as you mentioned, varies based on the individual. Um, so there's PTs that I know that crush weighted balls with everyone. And it's not necessarily a one size fits all approach to exercise. Unfortunately, you know, you can't just pick, you know, the shoulder program and give that to every baseball player that you work with. You know, unfortunately, 
the demands of a catcher are probably going to be a little bit different than the demands of a first baseman. And those are probably going to be a bit different than the demands of a pitcher. And if you just give every single one of them, you know, band IRER, band walkouts, and, you know, maybe even some band uppercuts, then you're probably doing them a disservice because unfortunately general shoulder strengthening or general strengthening and ever uh, in general can take you so far, but it's not going to, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, some of these things, if you're not careful from your screening and evaluation process can actually feed into the dysfunction um, if you're just doing the same thing for everyone. Well, you're, you're making a lot of really bad assumptions when, when we do stuff like that number, you know, and I have a, uh, a kid in mind that, that I'm thinking about just came in, he just uh, had a labral reconstruction and I was asking him what his PT was doing with him. And so one, it was a lot of things you just mentioned, and that's the false assumption that strength is the issue, right? That isolated strength in those tissues is the issue, number one. Number two, in that it may actually not be strength, it may be actually a timing issue. Um, the second thing is, are the rep sets and, and training parameters that you're giving this individual even set up to give them strength? Because if you're doing... 30 reps of, you know, hand against the wall, you know, rolling a, a, a basketball around, it may be good for to developing some initial appropriate reception, but you're not building any real strength with that, that, that type of, you know, low load and, and uh, low amplitude type of stuff. So that's not preparing them for, for a violent movement, like throwing a baseball. And so even if you're on the, you're on the, the, you know, preconception that it is strength, that's not building strength. Right. So you have to know, you have to have, you have your, you have to have your rep range is appropriate that, that the load is appropriate, that you're even going to build strength. And that's, again, the assumption that strength is the issue, that it's not timing, that it's not deceleration, that it's not um, a matter of other things being, you know, not being the issues because we automatically look locally to the shoulder when the shoulder may be the one caught in the crossfire, because if you can't generate any force from the ground up through your hips and through your trunk, then your isolated rotator cuff strength really doesn't mean anything. You know, continue to strengthen the rotator cuff all day long. But, um, you know, if you don't fix the fundamental cause of things, and, you know, that's under the assumption that you can even get to what you feel is the one root cause. Because, you know, I keep hearing that term root cause or root of the, root of the dysfunction or whatever. And, you know, sometimes I'll even go out and say, like, I can't necessarily say it's the one thing, right? Everyone looks for the one thing that's wrong and then fix this and then the magic pill and everything's good. And sometimes it's not just one thing. Sometimes it's co a combination of all of them put together. So it's not just a lack of core stability. It's a lack of core stability and a dis, you know, ability, a lack of an ability to disassociate movement. And it's um, some rotator cuff weakness. And it's this, it's not just one of them. Um, so taking it a step further, you know, you really have to make sure that you hit everything and make sure that you're programming after your, you know, full evaluation. And you mentioned a lot of great tools from OnBaseU to uh, FMS, SFMA to help with that. Uh, your programming really has to address every consideration and not just the ones that you feel like hitting on that day. Well, we also have not only do we have the biases towards what we're going to move towards, you know, within our own toolboxes, but we're also making the assumption that it's in our wheelhouse in the first place. Like, what if the problem is a mechanical issue? Like this person just has horrendous throwing mechanics, right? And it doesn't matter how many, you know, they could be the world champion of band ER exercises in your clinic. But if they go out and they have just awful throwing mechanics, then it doesn't matter. 
It really doesn't. And so um, you have to look at it from the, the aspect of, okay, well, what is it ultimately that we need this individual to do? And is, is the skill intact? And so I have to then constantly decide, is this a skill issue or is this a, is this a, a, a fitness or performance issue? So if we go through and we say, okay, and we look at, <clears throat> and I'll say, okay, well, tell me about some of the things your, your pitching coach or your hitting coach uh, has been you know, struggling with getting you to do, or let me even see some video of your delivery. And I'm not pretending to be a hitting coach or a pitching coach, but I can see if there's general um, inefficiencies in your delivery. And it's not necessarily your style. It's just a matter of, are you doing things like you can't keep your front side closed when you land? And then I want to dial back and say, okay, well, maybe you can't keep your front side closed because you don't have the internal rotation in your front hip. You don't have control over that. And so you have no choice but to fly open. And then that leads to all the stress in your elbow. Well, once I check the boxes and say, well, they have the good hip rotation, they have the good single leg stability, but they still fly open. Well, guess whose problem that is? That's the pitching coach's problem. It's no longer in my wheelhouse. This is a skill problem that they have all the things they need physically to be able to do it correctly. They just don't because they don't have that, that patterning from a skill perspective. So that's really where we have to look at that. And then you also have to look at what is their program look like, right? So you can have every, I think you come into that, the testing with me and pass every single test and you've hit all the minimum marks and you, and you look really good. And then I watch your, your delivery and your delivery looks pretty sound and intact. And I don't see any major holes in it and you still hurt your arm. Why? Well, because you, the way you prepare physiologically to throw is terrible. You don't have enough volume or you don't have enough intent or you have too much volume and too much intent how you manage that is a whole nother series of things that we have to consider and understanding. And okay, well, you hurt your arm because the, the most you've thrown is a 15 pinch, you know, flat land uh, or, or flat ground bullpen. And now you just went out and it's 45 degrees out and you went out in your first varsity start and you threw 90 pitches. That's not a training issue. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a delivery issue. That's a physiological issue. Just really bad planning. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And as you mentioned earlier, there's so many other physiological factors that can play into that as well, right? Like, you know, if you're the athlete who only sleeps four hours a night, then don't expect to recover. If you're the athlete who's consuming 1500 calories a day while playing three hours of practice or training or whatever you want to, you know, throw in there per day, then don't expect to recover and play at a high level. You know, we have to make sure that we're hitting those fundamentals first and you know i feel like for you anyways you probably feel like you're kind of like uh like a guide or a navigator for people sometimes because people come to you and they say look here's what i want to do but you know at times you're saying look you know you can get there but you don't necessarily need like traditional strength training to get there you need like work with your pitching coach on this or work with your hitting coach on this um you know i think I think it takes a lot, I would assume, uh, for someone like you in a private sector to be able to say, like, look, I might not be the best person for you. You might want to take this issue up with this coach or this person instead. Yeah, 100 percent. And you need to have the humility to do that. And, um, you know, one of the things I'll say when I work with teams is we'll finish the workout and I'll say, you know, how many people thought that was hard? How many people thought that was difficult? Like you gave it everything you had and, you know, their hands will go up. I go, wouldn't it suck if that was all for nothing? 
And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, cause you might've done that all for nothing. And I go, here's what I mean. I said, first of all, we don't, when we were in the gym, are we building up or breaking down? Um, building up? No, try again. We're actually breaking down. We're actually challenging yourself. So your body goes, oh my gosh, I don't know what you just did, but if you're gonna keep doing that, I have to get better at that thing. I have to get stronger. I have to get more you know, endurance, whatever that may be. And then say, okay, that means the magic happens the other 23 hours of the day. And so the two biggest factors in that recovery are going to be your nutrition and it's going to be your, and it's going to be your, your sleep and, and rest. And I said, so if you stay up all night tonight, playing Fortnite, you know, eating, you know, uh, Skittles and, and not drink, you know, drinking Red Bull, and then you get no sleep. And then you're going to show up for a four o'clock high school game. And all you had was a bagel at 11 AM. You have nothing to go on. And I said, and, and I, if you want to get it geeky, I said, we'll go into the research. If you get less than, if you get less than six hours sleep, your reaction time goes down. So what does that mean? Maybe that's the, the, the timing in your rotator cuff that decelerated your arm before that doesn't do it today. Or maybe it's the fastball that you used to get around on. Now you don't today. Um, or, you know, or the jump on the, the ball in the hole that you used to be able to get to that you don't today. And that's not anything other than just really poor lifestyle management. And um, there's even some stuff I've seen recently coming out about the importance of visual input to a sport like baseball, because you have split second time to react to hitting a ball. And, you know, if you're in the infield, you might have split second time to react to a ball hit towards you. Uh, and sometimes the mental and visual side of that, um, you know, is overlooked as well. And sleep and some of these other factors all play into that. And, um, you know, we've done uh, uh, podcast episodes in the past that have discussed, you know, the countless benefits of exercise. And one of them is just basic blood flow and circulation, right? The more blood you pump to all these different organs, the healthier they're going to be if you recover properly. And that includes things like your eyes and your cognitive pathways that feed into reactivity. Uh, and, you know, even if you change, even if you can improve your reaction time by less than 10th of a 10th of a second in a sport like baseball, that can be the, the difference between hitting a ball and swinging and missing. That could be the difference between getting to a ball in the infield and watching it roll out into the outfield. So, you know, in a sport like this, all of those little things matter. Now, as we're talking here, I realize, you know, you're a program design guy and we haven't even discussed what one of your programs for a baseball player might look like, you know, whether it's a pitcher or a catcher, whatever position, walk me through what a general program for one of your baseball athletes might uh, look like. Okay. So first thing we do is we look at the other 23 hours a day. Okay. And so <laughs> what we look at is, is to say, okay, well, first we have to get your nutrition. So it's manageable and it's not a detriment that that's not a roadblock. And we have to get your sleep in order enough that it's, that's not a detriment or roadblock. Once we can kind of get those somewhat in order, and we can go deeper into how I do some of those approaches. The, the second thing we look at is, okay, well, we want to make sure that we keep up your movement quality. And I'll steal a, a, a great term from uh, Luca Hosevar, who we had as a guest on our podcast, talking about your movement hygiene, right? And I say, uh, this is going to be like 10 minutes a day just to make sure you're moving well. Now that, that may be mobility, that may be some stability, that may be um, working on some elasticity. I don't know until I test you. So it's going to just basically be a recipe of eight to 10 minutes a day, almost kind of like you're brushing your teeth to say, this is something you got to do every day before you hit the field, before you go and throw, hit any of those things. This is just kind of getting you so you move well and to create 
greater body awareness and to make it so you don't have that emergency break on. So you don't have anything you're working against, whether it's stiffness, whether it's um, lack of control, whether it's lack of elasticity, any of those things. So basically just some general movement hygiene you're going to do every day. Then from there, it's really dependent on where you are in your season in terms of off-season, pre-season, in-season type of situation, which unfortunately for a lot of kids is in-season now runs from, you know, from March until till November, you know, at least here in, in, in New Jersey, you know, I, I was, I went past fields, you know, uh, March 18th, they had full blown tournaments going out. Uh, and if you know the weather around here, that means those kids probably got on an actual field maybe once before they went into like full weekend tournaments, which is insane. Um, so those are things that need to cons get considered. We want to get at least twice a week of some specific strength, slash power, um, you know, slash, you know, uh, movement coordination type of work at least twice a week. If we can get more great. Um, but sometimes that's tough to manage, especially if you have a multi-sport athlete. Um, and also you have such a short off season. Um, that's going to also be based on their movement in or their movement, uh, kind of tolerance, what they can handle. Um, and then from there, we're just going to basically go through, make sure you, you can reinforce all your, your fundamental movement patterns, squat, lunge, push, pull, you know, rotate, carry those types of things. And then we can cater that to wherever you are in terms of your abilities. And so then we get into, you know, the whole conversation we started having earlier about specificity. Well, I have a, a pretty simple system to look at. Do you need more general you know, what we call GPP, general physical preparedness, or do you need specific training, um, which is further down the line? And it's further down the line because you have to kind of earn your stripes. And, and we actually have in our course that we're developing a belt system like martial arts, where if you can't at least do this, like you don't show up day one and start sparring with the black belts for your own safety. And because you're not going to get any better doing that, you know, you start and you work as you know, through the white belts and then you work through the blue and then eventually to purple. And we have, I have the same system. We go through that. Once you've kind of got those baseline belts and you can do that, well, then we can get a little bit fancier, a little bit more specific. And then we can get where you're going to see some of the things that are going to get a little bit more sizzle and clicks on, on Instagram. Um, whereas no one's, you know, getting all excited about a, a regular old split squat, you know, relative to your body weight. So those are the things that we look at. And then when we get into some, some of the, 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 the force curve, like we talked about earlier, we're going to start with, um, isometric into just some gen, uh, controlled dynamic into deceleration and then eventually work on some more explosive type things, whether it be medicine balls, whether it be jumps, whether it be sprints or any of those types of things. Awesome. Yeah. That's a great rundown and a great overview and look at how you're programming. I got to ask, you know, when an athlete comes in, you got comes in and, you know, sees you and you want to hear how they're doing that day. What kind of questions are you looking at? Are you looking at RPE? Are you just doing like a general conversation about their day? Or is there something that you're tracking like a log or something to kind of assess where they're at as far as nutrition and strain goes? Yeah. So from a, like a, a, a daily readiness type of screen, I have one that I developed where I look at a couple different compartments. I look uh, at just a general, just a quick 60 second movement screen of, of fundamental movements. And I'm doing this not necessarily as an assessment to discover things of uh, on intake. It's more of, of of balancing and playing it off of what norms I have already. So if I have someone that normally has really good rotation, now all of a sudden they're stuck going to the right. 
that's kind of a red flag for me. So um, we'll look at things like that. We'll also look at some, some motor control testing as well as uh, sometimes I look into grip testing. Uh, I'll do a timed breath hold. And what we're looking at is kind of compartmentalizing into um, do I have issues in one of three areas? And what'll happen is, is sometimes when you detect one thing, I don't, you lose a lot of sleep over it. Um, but if we see multiple things, then I start to ask questions like what's going on. And then something that they didn't come in to, sh you know, uh, outright sharing. Now there's going to say, well, I'm super stressed out or I'm, I got exams or tough time at work or whatever it may be. And they didn't share that coming in. Now that's important to know because I might want to dial back the volume a little bit. Maybe today's not the day to acquire the new skill. And then when I say there's three buckets, there's basically, there's the local bucket to say, okay, you know what? I just watched a squat and you don't, that doesn't look like your normal squat. Let me check your ankle range of motion. Oh, your left ankle's a little stiff. Yeah, I rolled it at practice the other day. Oh, okay. So let's let's do some ankle mobility drills and then retest that. Now, if it clears up right away, disaster averted. Let's stick with those drills for the next couple of days and make sure we stay on top of it. But now we can proceed as planned with caution. That's a local issue. Then we may have more of a regional issue where it's like, you know, my hips are super stiff. I had a long bus ride or, or uh, you know, I traveling cross country, something like that and my hips are just stiff. Well, that's more of a regional issue. We need to, we may need to do some hip mobility before we jump into the, the you know, the, the plan we already had laid out. Or if I'm seeing multiple things come up, like your breath hold time is down 25% from what it normally is. Your grip strength is down. Um, just your movement looks just more lethargic and not as crisp as usual. Like, okay, this is a global issue. Like your sleep may suck or you're stressed out or you're just dehydrated. There's something more in a global sense. Now I might just have to scrap the plan and we, and we need to do something altogether different. I love how you're assessing all of those different physiological factors. And then you have a plan in place. So if this happens, you do this. If that happens, you do that. Um, I have to ask now though, we're, I, I just got all the questions today, I guess, Eric. You know, I've seen athletes before that come in and, you know, they tell me they're tight, but then I look at their joint movement and their joint play and I can rotate their hip to 80, 90 degrees easily. Um, but to them, it feels tight. Um, you know, have you ever seen something similar where, you know, maybe an athlete did have a long road game away and, you know, their hips feel tight and you're looking at the rotation movement, you know, the swing mechanic or the throwing mechanic or whatever we're assessing and you realize like it might feel tight to them but it actually moves quite a bit and how might you approach something like that where it's like look you know you you're telling me it feels tight but from a movement standpoint you look good for lack of a better way to put it yeah and that's why having those objective measures doesn't let bias come in and just say, hey, let's just put you on a table and start stretching everything because we may actually make it worse. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you have to kind of distinguish to say, okay, well, is this stiffness? Is this soreness? Is this, um, you know, you're starting to get a little overtrained? Is this like, what is it that that really is going on here? Because when I'm looking at you from a purely from a movement standpoint, I don't see any barriers. I don't see restrictions, but that doesn't mean you know, what you're saying isn't valid. It just means it's not from what you think it is. It's from something else. And okay, what's going to be our strategy around that? 
Is it going to be that maybe we need to do um, some breathing techniques? Maybe we need to do, maybe we need to just get you, you know, jumping some rope and kind of get some circulation and get some lymphatic flow and that type of thing. Like, so it's really not just going off of any one thing because no one marker, even, you know, if you have that have clients that have wearables now, and most do where they're looking at HRV or they're looking at their strain from their whoop or their, I don't want to put too much weight into any one measure on any one day, because that's, that's going to drive you down a rabbit hole and you'll throw away a lot of good days that way. Um, so that's where you have to distinguish and kind of have a system. And when you start to see multiple flags coming up, well then, yeah, now I need to make an adjustment. And that adjustment is not necessarily just stretching something because it feels tight. And, and, and that's why I say some of the biggest keys is, can I get you to have really good body awareness to really understand connections and, and those sorts of things. So you have a much, you're much more well-versed in, in what some of these things actually are. Right. And, you know, speaking from a little bit of experience, not quite as much as you, I can tell you right now that a lot of athletes don't have that, at least when they first start to come to you, they can't really describe what they're feeling or how they're feeling. And they'll just kind of sit there and tell you, well, it hurts or while it's tight, while it's aching. And the more you can kind of push them to get a little bit deeper, the more feedback and insight you get as a coach or a PT or whatever. And that's going to make you more effective. You know, as we were talking, you know, there's, there's a value in the subjective side of things. I don't want to belittle that at all. You know, they, they might, an athlete might sit there and tell you that they feel tight and they're not tight. But that doesn't mean that there's not value in what they're trying to tell you or what they are telling you. I think it's important to listen to the athlete and consider what they're saying, but also make sure it matches what you see. I've actually seen a lot of times that tightness that they feel is more of a protective response from a lack of strength and stability there. So instead of getting them to stretch more, I actually find some value in hitting strength in the end range position. And again, that's a case by case, you know, basis. It's not going to work for everyone, but sometimes tightness is actually a sign of a strength deficit and not just a stretching uh, problem or muscle length issue, at least. Yeah. And, and asking why is it tight in the first place, mm -hmm. you know? And so uh, that's, that's an important thing to, to think about. And then even on the subjective side on the flip side of it is that, there's a lot of athletes who've been groomed mentally to think that you're supposed to feel like crap. Like it's supposed, like you're not supposed to feel good. And, and one of the, the biggest things that, that I always um, enjoy when on a client, you know, an athlete will tell me, it's like, you're like, wow, I actually feel pretty good. And it's like, well, no, well, that's what's supposed to happen. Like you're not supposed to feel like crap all the time. Now that, especially in a sport like baseball, where you have a lot, you know, multiple games in a week and you're riding on buses and that sort of thing, there's going to be, you know, it doesn't mean you feel like a million bucks all the time, but it also doesn't mean that you're supposed to continually feel beat up and feel like crap. So most of them have never felt good enough to know what feeling good even feels like. Yeah, definitely. And I guess, you know, that, that leads me to think, you know, a sport like baseball, they've had pitch counts in place for, a long time even since i was growing up playing little league but i would imagine that load management is still kind of a challenge for most baseball athletes especially with some of these big tournaments where they play multiple games in a weekend or even some of the professionals sometimes i would imagine load management becomes a bit of a challenge 
how do you go about kind of, you know, monitoring and managing overall load, whether that be the pitch count or a swing count or a long toss or something like that? Is there really a good way to say like where we hit too much or where we hit not enough or? Yeah, that's a, that's a, and we have long talks about that um, as part of our baseball health network initiative and to say, you know, we have this pitch count that's based purely on chronological age, but if you look number one at the, the, physiological and, and physical maturity differences between one 12 year old and the next, you know, as being someone who coached both of my boys and coached youth baseball for, for 15 years, you know, you see the 12 year old teams that go to Cooperstown every year. And you have some kids that are, you know, these baby faces who look like they just got out of diapers and other kids are literally shaving when they're there. And so, um, you know, that is going to make a huge impact in terms of what the pitch allowance is. Then you have the difference of, Okay, well, I have one kid who hasn't picked up a ball since last season ended, and now it's it's March, and there's first time they're picking up the ball and getting ready to throw, versus another kid who you know who did strength train, who did the, a throwing program, who did everything that they should do, you know, all off season, and they're given the same pitch count, right? And so they're they're two completely different bodies that can handle different things. For some of those kids, that pitch count may not even be enough. They could actually handle more. And then you have to look at in game. Are they, where are they missing? Are they missing up and down? Are they missing right to left? Are they struggling and putting in max effort or all the, are they pitching constantly with bases loaded? Are they running up the count all the time? So there's a lot more to it than that simple thing. And, and the reason why the, the pitch counts are there is, is a safeguard for, psycho coaches who will just run their kids into the ground for a plastic trophy. But then there's also the, the, the element of one is that you have so many kids that play on multiple teams. Um, and sometimes they have to, that's the nature of it. Like, so in, in the town where I am, if you were to play on the travel team, you also had to play rec because they didn't have enough kids for rec. And so the only way you would be able to get the fields for travel is they made you play rec as well. So automatically you're on two teams. So now if you're the kid who pitched, you know, through 85 pitches on the week on Saturday for his, his travel team. And now it's Monday night and you have your little league or your rec game and you don't communicate that to the, to the, to the rec coach. Well, he's going to put you out there and he's going to throw you again. And so it ultimately comes down to the parents. Cause if, if a, a grown man asks a 12 year old, are you good to pitch? They're going to say yes every time. So you as a parent, and that's why we have the, the, the education initiative, you have to really um, advocate for your own, child's health and you have to be able to be smart enough to say look i know this is a weekend tournament but my son has now this is the third day in a row he's pitching this isn't right i'm not allowing this to happen but you have a lot of organizations that are it's a huge money maker if we can win that that cool brass gold plate that i can hang up in my facility or i can get the banner that we won you know the battle of the the beach, you know, 2023, I can put that in my facility. And now we, now we're a more attractive club team that gets better players. And it's this whole cycle that is all driven by money. And, and really the kids are the ones who are just being used and abused through all of it. And so it's not as simple as just saying, if you're 12, don't throw any more than 85 pitches. There's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, and, you know, communication is the number one thing. The kids have to communicate and they have to be feel safe to communicate that if their arm doesn't feel right or if something doesn't feel right, that it's okay to say, I don't feel okay. And that you don't need to be a hero right now. We need to have the parents communicate with the coaches to say, Hey, he's playing on multiple teams 
or the coaches need to be educated to know, okay, well, just because you stayed within the pitch count, well, you just took that kid and you sent him to third base. Now he's got to throw it across the diamond with max effort. Like you didn't think of that, or you just took that kid out and you put him at catcher, right? Well, those are the things that coaches need to know that, that just aren't smart. You need to know how to manage that from a, from a load perspective. And so it's not a simple fix. I wish it was, but this is, it's, it's, it's a much, it's much more of a, the industry that youth sports has become has created this problem, you know, cause when I came up, we didn't have travel leagues. You, you played little league. And if you're good, you made the all-stars and you got to play an extra two weeks. And then you were done by, you know, by end of June at latest. Now, like I said, you have kids who are playing almost 12 months out of the year. And there's a reason major leaguers don't do it, let alone 12 year olds. Yeah, seriously, when you're still growing and developing and you still don't have like nearly as much uh, muscular strength and stability, you know, as you're growing. And, um, you know, I realized as you were talking there, you kind of hit on a lot of really essential pieces on load management for pitchers and baseball athletes. And, you know, I can't emphasize the importance enough of just kind of being open and honest about you know, as you mentioned, the pitch count or playing on multiple teams, like those are all key things. Ultimately, it all comes back to what we started with. Why are you here? And why are you doing what you're doing? Because, hey, if your goal is you want to, you know, win the Little League World Series, and you just want to be all in until age 13, then maybe that is the best thing for you. But if your goal is, hey, I want to play for a long time, I want to, you know, possibly keep my college options open, I want to play and have fun doing it. I don't want to, you know, possibly set myself up for increased risk of overuse type injuries or, Hey, you know, I think that, you know, long-term I could see myself doing this. I want to make baseball my future, whether that be professionally or coaching or scouting or something along those lines. Like you really have to go at things with the end game in mind. You can't just focus on the right now. You always have to be thinking about the big picture five to 10 years from now. And unfortunately, doing more in the moment is not always going to set you up for success later on. And if you don't believe me, stand up and do a thousand reps of squats right now. And I guarantee you, your first rep is going to look a lot more pretty than rep 1000. Your form is going to be better. You're going to feel a lot better. Um, but after fatigue sets in, breakdown occurs. We start to lose our motor control and our mo uh, movement pattern and movement strategy and you know, there's so many other things that come with the fatigue and overuse and just doing the same thing for a long period of time, not to even mention the mental effects of that. So really kind of honing in on what your goal is, why you're doing what you're doing, and making sure what you do matches that, whether that be in the gym or on the diamond. Yeah, I, we we don't do a really good job in this country of having a solid um, universal long-term athletic development model. And that, that, you know, the keywords in that is long-term, right? Uh, we just had Mike Guadango on our, on our uh, podcast. He had a great expression. He says, I never, you're never going to burn anything in a slow cooker. Right. And so it's a matter of, of, I want to develop this um, over the long haul. Um, Cause athletes are going to change so dynamically. I can't tell you how many kids that um, my sons played with that were all everything you know, when they were 11, 12 years old, and they didn't even play a, a single inning of high school baseball. And then kids who, who, who rode the bench and who were batting 12th, who ended up being, you know, really successful high school players and going on and playing college. 
Um, so long-term and then athlete development, we don't develop kids as athletes. We have these little incubators where we're making mini, you know, soccer stars and baseball stars, and we don't really develop them as athletes. Um, and as somebody who coached, you know, baseball for a lot of years, you give me a kid who's really athletic. I'll take that over the kid who does, you know, a paid lesson once or twice a week, every time, because I can take that athletic kid and I can make him into anything. Um, if you have the, the ability to teach skills, but take a kid who who's just skilled and then try to make them athletic, that's a lot tougher. And that's where the, the big missing piece is. So that long-term athletic development and, and not only physically, but to your point, mentally being able to have someone who, who has, you know, the ability to have resiliency, the ability to understand that, that especially in a game like baseball, it's a game of mistakes. It's a game of errors. It's a game of failure. Um, it is not immediate gratification. Um, and that is very hard, especially for the generation that's coming up Not not to sound like the old guy, but that's very hard in an immediate gratification world, um, to, to get them to appreciate a game like baseball and to not just constantly find, you know, where I can make them the big fish in the little pond so they can get the plastic trophy. Um, and so there's, there's an art to that as well. Completely agree with you. And, um, you know, to your point on, you know, instant versus delayed gratification and, you know, the best things take time. I probably shouldn't ask you about your thoughts on the new baseball clock then, huh? Well, if it gets more people to watch the game and more importantly, involved in the game, I'm all for it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not one of these old get off my lawn baseball guys that, that, that's, that's, you know, that's resistant to change. And if it, if it, if it expedites things, my only concern initially is during the adaptation of it, that if, you know, you're rushing or it leads to fatigue, that that could possibly lead to more injuries because fatigue is one of the number one risk factors for injury. So whether that's fatigue, cause you, you're not, not properly um, hydrated or don't have enough nutrients, or you don't have enough sleep or rest, or you're just not fit enough um, to, to go on that, you know, to go at that pace. That's my only apprehension is that if it can possibly lead to more injuries. Um, but anything that's going to get more people involved in the game, because, because what's happened is, is in the multi-billion dollar travel industry, we've driven, it's not ultimately developing the game and it's not really even developing better players, so to speak. Um, it's because it's all games. I mean, I fought tooth and nail as a coach, to get less tournaments and to get more practice time, because I'm like, how am I going to ever make anybody better if all they do is show up and play games and they're never going to really experience success? Because if I have that kid who's underdeveloped, I have to put them out in a safe position. I can't put them in a position where they can possibly get hurt. And now because I don't, they don't get the repetitions that they need to develop their skill. If they get a ball hit to them, they're probably going to make an error. And because they don't, I don't get enough time to work with them on their skill. They don't have success at the plate because it's the hardest thing to do in all sports. And now this kid makes two errors and he strikes out three times. You know, they're going to go and play soccer. You know, they're going to go and play lacrosse. They're going to go and do something else where I don't have that spotlight on me when the ball comes to me. I don't have the spotlight on me when I'm up at the plate and I can go kind of be one of 11 running around on a field and kicking the ball. And so that's how we lose a lot of kids in baseball because we just do a really crappy job of developing because it's all about tournaments and money and, and travel teams and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Eric, as we start to wrap up here, I know we've discussed on a lot of different essential topics for uh, dealing with, or I guess I should rephrase that 
for managing and treating and evaluating a baseball athlete. So do you have any kind of closing thoughts or anything you really want people to remember from a discussion on program considerations, movement considerations, and screening considerations, and a little bit of load management for baseball athletes? Yeah, how we go about it is is poor at best with baseball. We have a lot of, you have one group that's the old school that thinks, you know, lifting weights is going to screw you up and then nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and that, you know, lifting weights isn't for baseball and it's going to make you stiff and it's going to make you like, look at Shohei Otani squats, 500 pounds. He's the, he's one of the, the, the greatest freak athletes I've ever seen in my life. Um, so nothing can be further from the truth there. So that's the one thing is, is not be scared about developing as an athlete. Um, number one, number two, um, is that, you know, what we do doesn't match what we need. And so like, I constantly argue with high school coaches. Um, what do you think the number one thing coaches do at practice for conditioning or for their, for, for their physical development? You want to take a guess? Number one thing for physical development is probably just conditioning, like run is, more, do more, run poles. Increase is the they, they, what they do is they run poles. I have a great shirt I got from Chadwell Longworth says stop running poles. And it's just, hey, go to any outfield. You're going to run from foul pole to foul pole. Now, I can tell you, I've seen a lot of baseball in my life and never, ever did I get to the end of the game and say, you know what, if that team could have just run some more poles, they probably would have won that game. <laughs> like if that team was better conditioned, they would have won that game. Never, ever, ever did I say that in thousands and thousands of games that I've seen. They made, they lost because they didn't pitch well. They didn't have the athleticism or they didn't have the ability to produce force or, or control their bodies well enough to win the game. Never has it been an issue of conditioning. So why are we wasting half hour practice running poles? And I say running is for coaches who ran out of stuff to coach. It really is. My, my younger son had to do a mile run test his first day of varsity baseball. And I could think of nothing dumber because my first thought was, okay, let's say he runs the fastest mile in his school's history, but he can't hit, he can't throw, and he can't run the bases. Does he going to play? Absolutely not. So what difference did it make? And what if you have a kid who hits absolute bombs, who throws gas, who's just your absolute stud on your team, and he makes it an eighth of a mile and throws up and quits? Are you going to not play him? It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. So coaches who use running as a tool is, is ridiculous. Now, what do I do now? I have a high school baseball team we'll be working with on the field tomorrow. We, we don't have the time. To, we don't have time to go to the weight room because they play three games a week, plus they have practice, and then we don't have access to the weight room. Um, so how am I going to keep them fit from everything we did in the off season? We, we work on movement quality and then we folk, we do three skills. We jump to keep some explosiveness. We crawl to work on stability and we do, and we sprint to work on our ability to, to produce force and, and, and be explosive so, and be fast. So we do those three things and all of that maybe takes 20 minutes, right? So if you can do nothing else, jump, crawl, sprint. I love that. I love that. I mean, that's essentially the modern version of chop wood, carry water at the end of the day is speed Great up, book, slow, <laughs> speed up, slow down, move in multiple directions. And, um, you know, I love that you brought up the crawling for shoulder stability. There was a individual I worked with over a year ago at this point on the podcast, Jeff Buxton, 
who was a big uh, quadrupedal movement guy or animal flow. And, uh, you know, he made the claim that most of shoulder stability can be corrected by learning to crawl and move your body in a closed chain shoulder environment. And, um, you know, I'm glad you brought that up here at the end. And Eric, I know you are involved with so many different things, as you mentioned initially, from Diamond Revolution, baseball, baseball and softball performance training, all the way up to, you know, um, the nonprofit there, Baseball Health Network and Principles of Program Design. So for people who want to check that stuff out, where can they find you at and what all are you involved in with those? So easiest place, the, the hub is just my main website, which is just my name. It's just Eric Degatti, E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I.com. Has links to all that stuff. Plus you can get links to all my social media where I'm posting stuff on a regular basis, whether it's training tips or clips from the from the podcast or things like that. So I try to put out a ton of free content that uh, I can kind of share a little bit of what I've learned over these last uh, 25 years or so. Yeah, definitely. We'll link to all of that below too. So if if you didn't quite catch that there, uh, you can check out everything Eric has online uh, and, you know, feel free to reach out to us as well after the podcast and give us a little bit of insight or feedback, or if you want to connect with Eric, I'm happy to link you through a DM or something like that as well. Eric, I really appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure working with you. Always a good time, Dan. Thanks again for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.